0: The deep end of, of the Scriptures as a whole, of the Gospel, there's some really significant, deep truth in the passage that we're looking at today and that we've been looking at over these number of weeks. And, and here's why it really matters, is because all of our faith rests on something. It stands on something. You're going to have some difficult things happen to you. You're going to have some challenges in your life. And you're going to have to go, what am I standing on? Am I standing on something strong and secure and firm? Or am I standing on sand? And, and this particular passage of Scripture, these passages we've been looking at, I've been saying give rebar to the foundation of our faith. They strengthen it, and they give us something to stand on. Now the deep water we're looking at here is the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election. I'll review what that is here in just a moment, but I I gave us some ground rules last week and I want to just remind you of those because I think they're important as we deal with a a deep and a challenging and a potentially controversial topic and issue in Scripture like this, okay? So here's the first ground rule, uh, is let today begin the conversation, not end it. This will confront some of you in terms of the experiences you had, the ways you uh, were raised. Maybe if you grew up in a particular church or tradition, even if you didn't grow up in a church or tradition, there's going to be some things about this. You go, man, that just doesn't feel like how I see things. And so here's what I'm asking is don't let it end the conversation. Don't feel like, okay, well, I don't like that. I'm out of here. I don't want to talk to anybody. Let's, let's let it begin the conversation. Let's make sure we understand each other. Let's ask questions, that kind of a thing, and we can, and we can talk about that. Along those lines, this Tuesday at 7 o'clock right out here in the lobby will be a, a Q&A time uh, hosted by our elders. Okay? Now, listen. This is a Q&A time, questions and answers, not an argument and answers time, okay? So if you have genuine questions, if you have genuine things that you just want to get kind of cleared up or, or understand a little better, please join us. Our, our elders will host that as a team, and we would love to have you uh, be part of that Tuesday at 7 right here. Um, second ground rule is we're under the authority of God's Word. We, we don't get to make a God in our own image. We Uh, understand God as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures, which means if we see something in the scriptures that we don't like, the problem's on us, not on the scriptures. We want to submit to and know and understand uh, what God says. Third ground rule is that this isn't a systematic study of the doctrine of election or the doctrine of reformed theology or the doctrines of grace. This is a study of Romans 9. Okay, there's a lot of other scripture passages that relate to this issue, Um, in a lot of different ways, we're not going to be able to look at all those. We're just going to be able to look at this passage and try to understand uh, what it means. We also said there's some mystery to God there's some challenging things. You, you can't fully understand God. That's, that's part of what it is that He's God and that we're people. We can't fully understand Him. And as we said in this particular portion of Scripture, it's not that hard to understand what God's saying. It's pretty challenging to understand how it all works. And so there's some mystery here. And so we just want to approach this with some humility and an understanding that we're creatures. He's the Creator. As R.C. Sproul said, uh, he said this, if you understand everything God is saying in chapters 9 to 11, then you should be prepared to join the Trinity, all right? I didn't hear anyone that, from last week that was like, okay, I think I'm in. Number four, there's room for me. I don't think, I don't think so. Uh, th- there's mystery and, and challenge here, w- which is why, uh, on one hand, you go, well, there's just mystery, I just, you know, there's just stuff I'm not going to get, but I want to challenge you the other direction to go hang in there and do some work to try to understand this. Just because there's mystery doesn't mean that there isn't a lot that's also very clear. And so do some work to try to understand that and to try to get it. And then just remember Paul's heart and and God's heart in this, right? Paul said in the beginning of chapter 9, what started off this section was, I love my fellow Israelites so much and I'm so grieved that they are not trusting in Christ that I would go to hell for them if I could. In chapter 10, verse 1, he's going to say that his heart's desire and his prayer for them is that they would be saved. And this reflects the heart of God, who says in, in, in the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. That's absolutely God's heart. First Timothy 2 says that God doesn't desire any should perish. He, he desires all men to be saved. And yet that doesn't happen. And so we have to do some wrestling. Well, why doesn't that happen? How does this work? How come everyone doesn't go to heaven? And yet in the midst of that discussion, just remember God's heart. So just to review where we had been, In, in Romans 8, there were these staggering promises that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies, that if we are in Christ, we have the Spirit, and we call out to God as Father. He's adopted us into his family. The promise that if we are in Christ, if we love him and are called according to his purpose, nothing can separate us from his love. And all things work together for good. Those are some amazing, staggering promises. And the objection that Paul raised at the beginning of chapter 9 was this. Well, wait a second. God also made some staggering promises to Israel. And it seems like Israel is in unbelief. They're out of relationship with God. They're cut off from God because they're not trusting in the Messiah God sent. So Paul, how is it that you can say, we can trust these great promises if God's word has failed to Israel? That was the kind of objection that that really sets the whole context of of Romans 9 through 11. And we saw this answer last week, and and here here it was. God's promises to Israel have not failed. And and look at chapter 9, verse 6. Paul is, is emphatic on this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's Word hasn't failed. God's promise uh, didn't fall short. God has been totally and completely faithful to His promises to Israel. Why? How do we know that? Well, here, here's what He said. God's promises to Israel, God's Word to Israel have not failed because true Israel is a spiritual people, not ethnic, right? It didn't come just through, from lineage. It comes by, by faith, by, by having that spiritual reality True Israel is a spiritual people not ethnic who have been freely and unconditionally chosen by God to receive mercy. And it's that issue of God's choosing, of God's electing, that is challenging, that is a little bit difficult to understand, right? We kind of get the idea that God is in control of things, but when it comes to the idea that, okay, well, Jacob I I, I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob I chose, Esau I rejected. Well, why? Why, did, why would God do that? And he says in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. God does it this way so that it would be shown that He is in charge. Not, as it continues, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. God, God does it this way. He's God. He saves who He saves. He saves. And and the reaction we instantly have comes up in verse 14. Well, that doesn't feel fair. What what do you mean? That, That doesn't feel fair, we say. That's what verse 14 said. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul's response was, God can give mercy to who he wants to give mercy to. He quotes from the book of Exodus. When Moses had asked to see God's glory and God showed him election. God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And if we say, well, that's not fair, then here's the thing. We don't understand mercy. Mercy, by definition, is undeserved. Right? If you say, God owes everybody mercy, that's self-contradictory. That doesn't even make sense, right? Because he can't owe us mercy. Mercy is undeserved. And God says, I will give mercy to whom I give mercy, and I'll harden those whom I harden, just like I did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was responsible for his sin, and I was hardening. I'll give mercy to him I have mercy. I've hardened who I harden, And that raises another question. And this is the question that Paul's going to address and, and answer today. And, and that question we read in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You get the question? Well, why does God blame us? Right, If it's up to him, he gives mercy to whoever he wants and he doesn't to whoever he doesn't, why does he blame us? He could stop me from sinning. He could make me in relationship with him. Why does he blame me? Why am I responsible? It's his fault. It's his fault because he didn't give me mercy. That's the objection that we read in verse 19. Now Paul, interestingly, is going to answer that. And the way he's going to answer it is different than you'd think. You'd think that Paul might go, you know what, man, you're just not getting it at all, because sure, humans are totally responsible, right? We have a lot, we bear a lot of responsibility. We make real choices that have real outcomes that lead to real consequences. Uh, Absolutely. But Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't go there. Even though he's written about that in other places, even though a lot of the scripture makes it very clear that we are responsible for the real choices we make, and we make those because we want to, he doesn't go there. Instead, Paul elevates, lifts up the absolute sovereignty of God. When we say sovereignty of God, what we mean is that God is king. God is Lord. God can do as he pleases. That's what Paul lifts up. He doesn't go, well, yeah, l- let me just remind you about the human element. He's lifting up the God element, and he's, he's holding up the absolute sovereignty of God, and it highlights three important things. It highlights God's godness. It's a word that I invented. It highlights God's glory. And the absolute sovereignty of God highlights God's grace. That's what we're going to push into. But, but let me just, before we get into that, before we pray, let me tell you, I, I've personally had a hard time in my life embracing these truths. And I know a lot of you are in a place where you're going, this doesn't totally make sense. I don't know if I really like this. Like, I think I get what it's saying, but I, ugh, I just don't like that very much. And so let me tell you a little bit about just kind of my experience with that. When I was in, uh, when I was in after my freshman year of college, I played in uh, Kansas City, Missouri uh, with an Athletes in Action baseball team. I was a college baseball player, and they have these summer leagues all over the country. And I was in one in Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. And uh, our team was Athletes in Action. That's a, a a sports ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. They do ministry on college campuses, working with athletes and pro athletes and all that kind of stuff. And this baseball team was set up where three or four times a week we would do discipleship as a team and then we would have our games all week and then after we would play certain teams, we would have an opportunity to share the gospel with them and and do that kind of stuff. And so it was this incredible spiritual growth environment and a lot of fun to be able to play ball while doing all that. Well, I, uh, I remember the first night of that summer Um, when the whole team first kind of got together and we all got together at Steak and Shake. Anybody know Steak and Shake? That place is great. So we got together at Steak and Shake and I sat down with Tyler Johnson. Tyler, uh, some of you know him, he's the lead pastor of redemption as a whole. He's kind of the pastor to all the lead pastors of redemption. And he and I went to high school together. So that's how I'd found out about this AIA team and we hadn't seen each other in a while. So we sit at Steak and Shake and I say, Tyler, what's new, man? And he says, well, and, I mean, in so many words, he says, I, I've come to really embrace the doctrine of election. And I'm like, I just meant, like, how was school this semester, you know? Like, you know, but, but God was really doing some cool things in his life and heart, and so he started to tell me about what that meant and tell me the kinds of truths that we read about in Romans 9, and I just was like, I don't like that. That doesn't feel real good to me. I don't think I can embrace that. And it became a really interesting conversation over the course of the summer, right? Because I'm with a bunch of Christian guys from all over the country, from all different denominational backgrounds, church backgrounds, traditional backgrounds, all kinds of different stuff, and it becomes the topic of that whole summer. What do you think about election? What do you think about Romans 9? What do you think about this kind of stuff? And it was this hotly contested, hotly debated, lots of arguments, lots of immaturity all around, especially me included in those conversations. And it was a, it was a really challenging thing. But as I explored this, the Scriptures, I just couldn't get away from the fact that God is God and that God saves and that ultimately the reason anyone believes is because of God's sovereign grace to them. I couldn't get away from it. So after months of wrestling with that, I finally came to that conviction. Well, here's what's interesting. Molly and I had just started dating at the beginning of that summer. And um, she, I just already knew, like, this girl's amazing. She, we were gone for the, apart from each other the whole summer. She had made me a journal where every day of the summer, there was a scripture passage and something she was praying for me for that day. And I couldn't look ahead Right, and so all my buddies are like, dude, if you screw this up, you you got issues. right?" So I'm like, this girl's amazing. We've just started dating. But I've seen on my Christian baseball team how contentious this issue of election is and how much people don't like it. And so all summer, I had been like, not telling her that I'm in these conversations and wrestling with this stuff because I'm afraid of how she's going to react. And it's over the phone and who knows. And, and so, so finally, I come to this conviction that I, I believe that what Romans 9 says is what I believe. And uh, and so finally, I get up the courage and I call her. I say, "Hey, we got to talk." I think I scared her for a second. And uh, hey, I, I got to talk. And I've come to this conviction: I, I believe that God is in charge of salvation. And she goes, "Well, yeah, that's what Romans teaches." It was like the biggest sigh of relief ever, right? It was like, oh, you know. Because what had happened is the year before, she had been at a Bible study or a Sunday school class, I don't remember which, and they were studying the book of Romans. She said, that's what this, yeah, that's what the Scripture teaches. I was like, yes, I can marry her someday, you know. <laughs> um, but but, but here's, here's why I struggled with it so much, and here's why I think it was such a contentious issue, and here's potentially why you might be struggling with it if your experience is anything like mine, here's why. The doctrine of election, of unconditional election, that there's nothing that God sees in us that's good, that he saves us on the basis purely and solely of his grace and mercy, is a frontal assault on our pride. That's what it was for me. It was a frontal assault on my pride because I want to be able to contribute something to this. I want to be able to say, well, surely God saw something good in me. Surely God kind of looked down the quarters of time and said, oh, I want that guy on my team because he's amazing. I, I want to be able to say I contributed something. And I did contribute something, but here's what the scripture says. The only thing I contributed was sin. There was nothing God saw in me good. And it attacks that pride. Here's the other kind of pride it attacks. It attacks the kind of pride that says that I know better than God how God should be God. It's the kind of pride that says, well, my God would never blank, rather than being submissive to the God as as he's revealed himself in the Scripture. And so it attacks that pride because we want to contribute something and we want to say, well, I, I know better than God how he should do his job and run his world, and, and we don't. We don't. So we struggle with it. That's what it's been for me, and, and, and why I think I had a hard time embracing it. Here, here's another reason that uh, John Piper gives. I think this is really, really key. He says this, most people who read Romans 9 are shocked, Very few are so steeped in the biblical spirit of the majesty and freedom of God that these words make sense. You know what he's saying? Man-centered, all about us, that's the air we breathe. And very few of us have a biblical picture of how big and majestic, as we sang, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. We don't have a good picture of that because we're so focused on us. It makes it harder to believe. But Paul says that the absolute sovereignty of God highlights God's godness, God's glory, and God's grace. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you, and we can know your heart. God, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying in this passage. God, I pray that... um, that these words would be your words. God, I pray that you would give us your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the absolute sovereignty of God highlights, first, God's godness. Again, I'm sure someone else has said that before, but that's a word that I just thought of. Godness, his ability to be God, the reality that God is God and that you're not God, okay? So, so let's look back again at verse 19. We see this, this question, this objection that comes. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will, right? Again, the question is, why does he blame us? This is really God's fault. Here's Paul's answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The word answer back there, is like to talk back or to sass or to pop off. Who are you to pop off to God, right? So this is not like an innocent, uh, humble, I just want to understand how this works question, right? Paul would have a lot of patience for a question like this. This is an arrogant, I'm standing in judgment of God. I know better than God how he should run the world. That's what that word answer back means. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God is God. And listen, to the degree that your questions are not just humble, wanting to know, but to the degree that they are condemning God, saying, God, you shouldn't be like this. Listen, here's here's Paul's answer. Sit down and shut up. And that's, I mean, that's a phrase we don't let our kids say in our house. I I know that's a serious phrase, right? Sit down and shut up. That's Paul's answer if you're going to stand in judgment over God. Who are you, oh man? You're you're a little itty-bitty man. You don't know diddly squat compared to God. This reminds me of the story of Job. Some of you have read in Job, and he's experienced this incredible suffering, and he doesn't really even know for sure why. And his friends are coming, and they're coming to him and saying, well, you, you must have sinned because, you know, what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Clearly, you did something bad in order to deserve this. He's going, I really don't think that's the case. And then eventually, partway through the story, he begins to get mad at God. He begins to say, God is, 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 God's hurting me. This is wrong of God to run things this way. This is wrong of God to do this. And that's when the book gets really interesting because God comes to Job in a whirlwind and he says, dress for action like a man. I'll ask you the questions. Where were you again, Job, when I made the snow? Hey, Job, where were you when I set up, here's where the ocean is gonna meet the sand? Oh yeah, you weren't there for that. And Job answers in the end, and this is a paraphrase, sorry, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. <laughs> he, he says, I, I, had, I had no place, right? And the, listen, get this, this is key. It's not wrong to want to understand things. It's not wrong to have serious and sincere questions about God's word and about how things work. That is totally fine. But it is wrong as a creature to stand in judgment over God. That is pride. That is sin. And so Paul says here, will what is molded say to its molder, why did you make me like this? Some of you guys know Bob Clevin. Uh, Bob's fantastic as a woodworker and made this cross and has done a bunch of other uh, just stuff for us at the church. And I was in their home recently, and, and Bob's woodworking skill is everywhere, all over their home, right? And some of it's picture frames, and some of it's cabinets, and some of it, it's just all this different stuff. Well, what if, what if a cabinet stood up and said, Bob, I wanted to be a picture frame. What are you doing, Bob? Come on. Right? I mean, it's just absurd, right? It's like Bob is the molder. He has every right to do what he wants with the wood he makes. That's Paul's point. This is elevating God's godness. He's God, you're not. And then in what I think is an appeal to Old Testament Scripture, he says in verse 21, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable And you feel like, well, isn't that the same thing? I mean, that's the same point he just made. Yeah, but I think the reason he includes it is because so much of the Old Testament scripture, especially the prophets in Jeremiah and in Isaiah, talk about God as a potter and us as the clay. I think this is Paul's way of saying, hey, remember, this is how it's always been. God has always been God. And one of the passages that just kind of references this, just for you to get a feel for this, is in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, God says this, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. But notice in the next verses, even God's, he's totally free to do what he wants, but he's also just, he's going to do what's right. Look what it says next. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time, if I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and deeds. God is the potter. God is the creator. God is God. The absolute sovereignty of God highlights that. Who are we to stand in Judgment the next thing that the absolute sovereignty of God highlights is God's glory. And this is interesting because, you know, in light of the way Paul has just answered this, you would maybe expect him to just stop at verse 21. Like, I'm not even going to give you an explanation because of your attitude, right? Who are you to talk back? End of the conversation. But he doesn't end there. He actually gives a little bit of an answer, and one commentator called uh, verses twenty two and twenty three the closest the Bible comes to explaining god 's mysterious ways. Notice it says the closest right the verses twenty two and twenty three are probably not going to be completely like, "Oh, I, I get it all now, but it 's as close as we 're going to come and Paul gives us uh, some explanation for for why God is The way he is and why he does what he does. And it's to display, to highlight his glory. Look at verse 22. What if God, and this is not a, well, maybe this is the reason, this is a declarative uh, but hypothetical, or or, but a rhetorical question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God's glory is his esteem. God's glory is his worth. God's glory is his fame. And the absolute sovereignty of God highlights not just that God is in charge, but that he is famous, that he is majestic, that he is full of splendor and beauty and holiness. This passage, these few verses, show us three things about God's purposes. First, in verse 22, it shows us that God wants to display his wrath and his power. You see that in verse 22? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured and so forth? God wants to show his wrath and power. Why? Because it's part of his character, it's part of his nature. Listen. God hates sin. God hates evil. God knows that sin and evil destroy our lives, right? Listen, you hate sin and evil too. You just don't hate it with the perfect kind of hate that God does. And God wants his people to see, this is who I am. I am so holy. I'm holy, holy, holy. I hate this. And you need to see how seriously I take it. He wants to display that. He wants to show that he hates sin, that he is righteous. It it shows the full range of God's character, right? It's a bit, and this is not a perfect analogy, but it's a bit like an artist who wants to show the full range of their creative ability, or an athlete that wants to show the full range of their ability to jump, and their ability to swim, and their ability to, all the different kinds of things you could do as an athlete. And God is saying, this is who I am. I can't hide who I am. I'm God, and part of being me is that I hate wrath, or I hate sin, and I, and I have wrath against it, and I want to show it to you. So that's one of God's purposes. Another thing we see about God's purposes is that he's patient with sinners. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He's endured with much patience. God is angry at sin, and God hates sin, and God will punish sin, but God doesn't ever lose his cool. Right? God doesn't fly off the handle. God doesn't freak out. God isn't like a a parent who just can't take it anymore. Shut up, right? That's not God. God is measured, God is in control. The the wrath of God is a consuming fire, but it is always with control, which is why there are places in the scripture, like there's a really interesting place in Genesis 15 where there's the the Amorites are a wicked group of people, and God says, I'm going to destroy them, but I'm going to wait 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, they haven't quite reached the level that I'm just going to totally wipe them out. I'm going to wait until that happens. God is patient with sinners. Again, this shows us God's heart. This isn't capricious. This isn't wild and out of control. This is a measured, holy, righteous God. Hates sin, but is patient with sinners. And the third thing we see about this purpose, uh, about God's purposes, is that his punishment of sin in the vessels of wrath displays the riches of his glory to his vessels of mercy. See this? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? In order to make known, again, to display the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. God wants to show the people He's had mercy on how much mercy He's had on them. This is a display for them to see it. And notice, it doesn't just say that he wants to make known his glory, but the riches of his glory, the beauty of his glory, the wealth of his glory. Right, listen, you can't appreciate God's mercy. You can't appreciate how you've been saved unless you remember and can tell what you've been saved from. And so God will show the vessels of mercy that he has set his love on before the foundation of the world, just as we saw in Romans 8, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And he is going to show his people the full range of who he is, the riches of his glory, even in the punishment of sin and sinners. Now, again, how does that all work? Does it, does it feel like, well, God is just sort of really just can't wait to crush whoever he can? No, that's not the heart you get from this. God is patient, but he's righteous, and he's going to show his people how magnificently they've been saved. But there's a couple of phrases here that, that always raise questions and raise challenges if you're reading this carefully, okay? Look at verse 22. In verse 22, we see uh, th- that God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of glory for vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. What about that? Is that saying that, that God has prepared the vessels of wrath, like... He's responsible for them being vessels of wrath. He's prepared them for destruction, and he has prepared beforehand the vessels of mercy for glory. That seems to be what it is saying. Now, what makes this a little bit kind of interesting to try to interpret is that um, in verse 22 and verse 23, there are different Greek words for the word prepared. Prepared. Right, so our English translation, there's really not a, maybe you could translate verse 22 as vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. But prepared is, is probably just as good of a word as that. But, but it's a little bit different word. It seems like in verse 23, God is, is, has this sort of special attention to the way he prepares his vessels of mercy beforehand for glory. That, that same word prepared is the word that's also used in Ephesians 2.10 where it says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But nonetheless... This seems to be saying, in the context of this whole passage, seems to be saying that in refusing mercy to some, God is preparing others for destruction. That's what it seems to say, right? And the context seems to say that, right? God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He'll harden whom he hardens. He will choose Jacob. He will reject Esau. Some will be vessels of mercy, some will be vessels of wrath. And, and it's interesting here, because there's all these places in the Scripture where Paul, even in the book of Romans, we've seen that Paul firmly believes that you give an account for your real choices, right? In Romans 1, when he says that the wrath of God is coming because you've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, he never in any way seems to say, and you're off the hook because God did that to you. Never. Never. In chapter 2, when he says, if you have the law, you're going to break it. And if you don't have the law, you're going to violate your conscience. In no way does he seem to say, and that's God's fault. It's always on us. And yet, Paul here doesn't explain that. There's other passages that explain that. But here, the emphasis is on the absolute majesty and sovereignty of God because it shows his glory. And this is where the mystery exists. How does that work exactly? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if God explained it to me, I could get it. Here's what Doug Moo, he's a commentator on this, he says this, Paul never offers, here or anywhere else, a logical solution to the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that he creates. That he affirms human responsibility is, of course, clear. And we must never forget that Paul will go on in 930 to 1021 to attribute to the attribute the Jews' condemnation to their own willful failure to believe, right? That's what's coming next. Why do the Jews not believe? Because they rejected Jesus. That's what's coming. They are responsible. But Moo continues, Paul is content to hold the truths of God's absolute sovereignty in both election and in hardening and a few, full human responsibility without reconciling them. We would do well to emulate his approach. You know, someone had come to Charles Spurgeon. He was a a famous preacher, and they had asked him, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And his answer was, you do not need to reconcile friends. Now, think about that for a minute. First time I heard that, I went, whoa, wait a minute. Here's what he's saying. Reconcile implies that, that there were enemies, right? Enemies had to be reconciled to become friends. But, but divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both taught in the Scriptures. They're both um, not just taught, but emphasized in the Scriptures. And they are both sweet and important truths. They're friends. Spurgeon goes, I, you, you don't need to reconcile friends. I don't need to figure out how it all works. I know both are true. God is absolutely sovereign, and we are absolutely responsible for the choices we make. Here's the last thing that the absolute sovereignty of God highlights is God's grace. God's grace. He said here in Romans 9, 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, and then this is where it gets really good, even us, even us whom he has called, Paul's saying to the people he's writing to, listen, this thing that God is doing, where he's going to display the riches of his glory to the vessels of wrath, or sorry, the vessels of mercy, that includes us. We're part of that. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This means that that vessels of mercy are not just for the people of Israel, people just born with that ethnicity. This is good news that is available to people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue, which is why we can go across the world and say, come to Christ, trust him, he will not cast you away. And then Paul quotes from a couple of prophets. It's been interesting actually if you followed his, his sort of all through Romans 9 here, he's been quoting the Old Testament. He started with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then he get into the Exodus and Moses. Now he's getting into the prophets. He's, he's making his case, saying this is how the Bible's always been. As indeed he says in Hosea, this is speaking of the Gentiles, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And, call, and her who was not beloved, I'll call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Listen, most of us in this room that trust Christ, that love Jesus, that have had our sins forgiven and cleansed, that have been united to Christ by faith are not Jewish. We are Gentiles. And isn't this amazing news that even though we were not part of God's original promises, He has grafted us in. That's amazing. Even us, even we get to experience it. And the Jews as well. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, I want to I focus in on that last verse. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you can read it in the book of Genesis. And Sodom was this unbelievably wicked town. Wicked in every conceivable way. And God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I am going to wipe out Sodom. I'm gonna, it's not going to exist when I'm done with it. And Abraham intercedes to God. He says, God, but if you find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? God says, okay. For if I find 50 righteous people there, I'll spare it. And Abraham says, all right, do I hear 40? God says, yes, I'll give you 40. And, 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 and he kind of works him down. And eventually it's, if I find 10 righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy it. And if you read Genesis, what you see is that God didn't find any righteous people. And Sodom was destroyed. And what this verse says in verse 29 is, if the Lord of hosts, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, if if, if He hadn't, by His sovereign mercy, made sure there was an offspring, we'd all be wiped out. Just like Sodom, that's what he's saying, right? We have just as much guilt as they do. We're not righteous either. I was reading a sermon this, this week by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is, uh, some have said, is the greatest mind that North America has ever produced. He was a, a pastor and a theologian and a philosopher, and he had a, a sermon, I, I, it, it took a while to read, but here's what it's called. This would be a, a fun bumper sticker for you, right? Here was the name of his sermon. The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. Uh, it was a fun read. I can't imagine listening to the whole thing. But, but here's, he, he makes a lot of different points, but, but there are, are four things he says that are really interesting. The first one is this. If God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. Right? We have this problem with judgment. We have this problem with God's wrath. It just doesn't, f- listen. If God treated us the way we treated him, He would be fully capable and right to wipe us out absolutely would be in full agreement with that think about this think about it god has given us air and god has given us food and water how many times have you used his air and the strength he gave you to dishonor him How many times have you neglected a relationship with God? How many times have you neglected private prayer? How many times have you gone, eh, Bible, I don't need it, whatever. How many times has your day started with checking Facebook instead of praying to God? How many times have you rather had what the world says is important than what God says is important? How many times have you neglected relationships in the church because you're off pursuing wealth or because you're off pursuing a hobby, or because you're off doing other things that that in the end will burn. Not giving God attention. Not giving God any focus. Not giving God your time, or your money, or your energy. How many times? What about your pride? What about the pride that has said, I know what God should be like. What about the sensuality of your heart and your mind and the impure thoughts that you've treasured up? What about the memories of sin that you reflect back on to comfort yourself and think of the good old days as you plan for more sin? Listen, if God were to cast us off forever, it would be totally agreeable with our treatment of him. Here's the second point. If God were to cast us off forever, it would be totally agreeable with our treatment of Jesus. We've treated Jesus. We've gone, eh, whatever yeah, he's a good guy, he's a religious teacher, he did some miracle workers. We don't acknowledge that he's the son of God. We go, well, yeah, he died on the cross, but you know, I really need to do some good stuff to earn this. Or we, we get so, you know, oh, wow, he saved me, I can do whatever I want, and we abuse his grace. Well, you know what, well, I'm just gonna go into this direction of willful sin, and I know it's wrong, but hey, better to ask forgiveness than permission. We abuse his grace we scoff at him. We ignore him. It would be totally right in light of how we treat Jesus for God to cast us off. His third point. Notice the theme here. If God were to forever cast you off, it would be totally agreeable with your treatment of others. The people around you are made in God's image. Your neighbors are made in God's image. And how many times have you looked down on them? How many times have you judged them? How many times have you hurt them with your tongue or with your thoughts? How many times have you told lies about someone to bring them down? How many times have you exaggerated a situation in order to make yourself look better than them? How many times have you rejoiced in the misfortune of other people? Think about how you've treated people. Think about how, if you're married, how you've treated your spouse. Think about the the words you've said. Think about the tone you've used. Think about the times when you've been nicer to the waitress at the restaurant than you are to your spouse. What about with your kids? Think about the ways you've neglected to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Think about the ways that they are catching all of your worldliness and bad habits. Think about all the times when you know you ought to discipline them but you're just too tired and too uncomfortable and it it would just be too tough. Think about that stuff. All of that together. It would be totally right for God to cast you off in light of how you treat others. And finally, he says, it would be totally right for God to cast you off forever. That would be totally agreeable with how you've treated yourself. All of the sin that all of us have committed, it's also against ourselves. It's a neglect of our soul. We've hardened our hearts. We've hardened our souls. We've filled our minds with junk that we can't get out. We've ruined our bodies. We've ruined our health. We've sinned against ourselves. Here's how Edwards concludes the sermon. He says this. Now, when you have thus behaved yourself, can you honestly say, that God is obliged to show you mercy? Does not God have every right to cast you off? Will you really blame God for your countless sins? Can you really excuse yourself objecting to God's justice or complain that God owes you pardoning grace? Really? Can not we? No. We can't look at God and go, oh God, it's your fault. No, every time we've sinned, we've wanted to. And even go, well, I didn't really want to do that. Well, in the moment you did. We sin by nature and we sin by choice. It's our fault. And if God looked around this room and if God looked around this community and if God looked around this world, he wouldn't find 50 righteous people. He wouldn't find 40 righteous people. He wouldn't find 10 righteous people. But listen, here's the good news. He found one. He found one. His Son, Jesus, is the one righteous person. The one person who fully honored His Father. The one person who fully lived the lives we should have lived. And if we will trust in Him, then here's what we know, that the wrath of God that deserved to come on us like it came on Sodom, instead it went on Jesus. And He bore it on the cross so that we could go free (laughs) the absolute sovereignty of god highlights his grace we don't deserve that and yet god in his free and sovereign and beautiful mercy and grace comes in and gives us what we could never deserve it's amazing let's pray Father in heaven, thank you for amazing grace. Thank you for Jesus, the one righteous man found who prevents our destruction and brings us home to you. God, thank you for mercy. And help us to stand in awe, to see you as you are, and to feel the joy of being objects of mercy. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, now we get to respond. That's a lot of deep, thought-provoking information. Here's all I'd encourage you to do during this time of responses.